When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1, since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, and welcome to Random Interesting Facts. The podcast about everything and nothing with your host 42 this week's topic is vacations so let's jet set right off to fact number one when did humans first go on holidays Do you remember those things called holidays? Or as Americans like to call them, vacations. For most of us in the post-2020 era, going on holiday is a distant memory. Did they even ever exist? I think I remember them, but it was oh so long ago. In a time where we were lucky enough just to be able to leave the house, the idea of going abroad seems like an untouchable dream. But according to my photo albums, they did indeed once happen. And I'm sure they will again, one day. But anyway, this concept of living somewhere else for a week or two in a completely different environment, with none of your usual daily activities to keep you occupied, seems like an entirely modern invention. And it's a kind of odd one at that. The idea that Vikings put in their holiday leave, packed their swim shorts, and went to the beach sounds a bit far-fetched, doesn't it? Mind you, isn't that exactly what the Vikings did? Got in the ocean, arrived on a beach, and then began murdering nuns. Yeah, I suppose I don't really do that last one on holiday. Probably for the best. But when did humans start going on vacations? You might not believe it, but the act of going on holiday can be traced all the way back to ancient Rome. That's right, Romans once enjoyed a little time away from all the crucifixions and local stonings. And the reasons the Romans were the first to partake in vacations offers us a glimpse into something essential that those of us in the West today often take for granted. 
peace and prosperity. With Roman territory engulfing most of Europe, North Africa and the Middle East, the Roman army and navy secured the borders and transport routes against banditry, which gave all its citizens the freedom to travel safely throughout the Roman Empire. And alas, holidays made their debut. But holidays for the Romans weren't quite the two-week break which we're used to today. Maybe they were just trying to do that thing which annoying people who wear lots of beads do, trying to find themselves. But 2000 years ago, with your average one day of travel taking you the grand total of 25 miles on average, it's not surprising a holiday needed to be for a little bit longer than a weekend break, especially if they wanted to go somewhere a bit more exotic. And so where were these Romans heading off to for their summer holes? Well, much like today, the Romans' choice of holiday varied depending on what they fancied and also how wealthy they were. For the particularly well-to-do Romans, they often holidayed in their villas in the Alban Hills, so not too different from the wealthy amongst us today. But for a slightly more exciting getaway, they travelled to the Bay of Naples. It was a firm favourite and it offered a more Las Vegasy vibe to their trip. Holidaymakers to the Bay of Naples enjoyed boat trips, athletic contests, theatre performances, baths, and good food and drink. And of course, remember, what happens in the Bay of Naples stays in the Bay of Naples. And the Romans just loved a good bit of nightlife. Before the eruption of Mount Vesuvius destroyed and covered Pompeii in ash, it was quite the party town for Roman stag dudes. Pompeii boasted over 30 brothels, which, by the way, were advertised with the use of signs with an erect penis on them. You've got to hand it to the Romans, they got straight to the point. I mean, you could even say they didn't beat around the bush. <clears throat> Sorry. Surprisingly, the Romans also liked a bit of culture. Not that we don't think of them as cultured people, far from it, but it's kind of an odd concept to think of Romans, who we now think of as ancient history, to go on history trips themselves. But Romans were obsessed with Greek mythology, and Greece was a popular tourism spot for Romans. They often made trips to Olympia to view the impressive statue of Zeus, and pervy Romans would also take a look at the nude statue of Aphrodite at Nidos. For those Romans looking to go somewhere slightly more exotic, Egypt was always a popular choice. And they were always sure to make a short detour to the Library of Alexandria, which always proved to be a blast. Get it? Before arriving at the Colossi of Memnon, which are two massive stone statues of the pharaoh Amenhotep III. Roman graffiti can even be seen carved into the base of these stones, 
just to prove that us humans really haven't changed over thousands of years. We've always been dickheads. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Next up, moments from history. Where each episode, we take a look back at one particularly odd moment from the past. This week, the time there were three popes at the same time. When you think of the Pope, what's the first thing you think of? No, not that. We're not going there today. It's Rome, obviously. The Pope, Rome and pizza usually come as a package deal for most Italian city tourists, but did you know this wasn't always the case? When a Pope finally gets to meet his maker, which for the Pope must just be like having a meeting with your boss, there's a drill that us mortals back on Earth like to follow. It's a strange gathering of men dressed in red robes, looking like some kind of parallel universe version of The Handmaid's Tale, in which they take over the Vatican, all in a bid to secure a new Pope. And we all sit glued to the telly to wait for some smoke come out of a chimney. If aliens ever visit us, they're going to be so confused. But this isn't how things went down in the 14th century. From 1305, a succession of seven popes didn't live in Rome at all, but in Avignon, France. And they were all Frenchmen, of course. Maybe they weren't very fond of pasta, who knows, but in 1376, when Pope Gregory XI became Pope, he moved his court to the historical city of Rome. And here our story begins. Although, actually, it ended for poor Pope Gregory, because he died in 1378. But anyway, our story continues. And it was his death which was the catalyst for what is now known as the Western Schism. Cheers, Greg. Because when all popes cop it, a new one needs to be chosen, of course. But in 1378, this wasn't going to be an easy task. Why, you might ask? Oh, just because Romans were rioting on the streets, threatening to kill the cardinals if they didn't elect a Roman pope. That's all. Nothing to worry about. 
Not wanting to upset a bunch of passionate and enraged Italians who were all busy doing so many of those hand gestures Italians just love to do, the Cardinals quickly elected Pope Urban VI as the new leader of the Catholic Church. Although the Cardinals definitely tried to pull the wool over the angry mob's eyes a little bit, because he wasn't actually from Rome, but Naples. Close enough. The Cardinals quickly fled Rome before the rampaging Romans figured out that they didn't quite get what they'd asked for. But it soon became apparent that the riots in the streets wouldn't be the problem for very long. You see, this new non-Roman but close enough Pope had an itty bitty bit of an anger problem. The Cardinals had originally expected him to be a very compliant Pope, but instead he suddenly emerged as an arrogant and angry son of a bitch. Sorry, I should have said son of a god. A Roman Catholic historian once summed up his character by stating he lacked Christian gentleness and charity. Speak for yourself, I kind of like my popes to be a bit rough around the edges, but maybe that's just me. This, along with the fact that the cardinals weren't completely happy that they hadn't elected a French pope, was just a tipping point for them. They threw their holy toys out of the pram and claimed that the election didn't actually count since they were being pressured by the angry mob outside. And so they swiftly elected a rival pope, Pope Clement VII of Avignon, who, you guessed it, was a Frenchman. Yay! I think they probably assumed the other pope would just step down at this point, which was a bit naive, because he did no such thing. It's as if they hadn't been paying attention to the fact that after they elected him, he turned out to be a complete knob. You have to remember as well that these were the days when the Pope was more than just the spiritual head of the church. They held a power akin to kings, they were almost like the kings of Europe actually. And we all know how overthrowing royalty usually goes. And then there was also this slight issue of a little thing called papal infallibility. That's the dogma of the Roman Catholic Church which states that the Pope is immune from making any errors in doctrine. Well, that sounds like a good deal, doesn't it? If I was Pope and I had immunity, I would just go around slapping people and pissing on tourists from the balcony of the Vatican. Yeah, it's probably a good job I'm not Pope. Anyway, so there was two Popes knocking around at this point, which of course highly contradicts this doctrine, as both of them can't be right right? This two-pope problem caused a rift across Catholic Europe, with some countries following Pope Urban and others following Pope Clement. And each pope called the other a phony, with each using religion as an excuse to annihilate each other. Because, you know, no one has ever used religion as an excuse to go to war before. Like, ever. Unfortunately, the problem didn't resolve itself when either of them died, as cardinals on both sides of the Catholic divide stuck to their stalemate and just elected a new rival pope each time. This went on and on until 1409, when the church council decided 
enough was enough, and they all met up in Pisa to try and sort out this whole popey mess. After taking some sweet Instagram snaps of them pretending to push the Leaning Tower of Pisa, they eventually agreed that both popes should resign, and that a new pope would be elected to unite the Catholic Church, and this whole ridiculous power struggle could finally be put to bed. And so they elected Pope Alexander V. Am I the only one who thinks that popes don't choose imaginative enough names? I mean, they can literally choose their own name when they get elected. They really have no imagination, do they? I mean, if I was elected pope, I think I'd have to call myself Pope Eggplant the First. Sorry, anyway, let's get back to our story. So this is the point where I should say they all lived happily ever after, with Pope Alexander coming in to save the day. But of course, I'm not going to do that, because the other two popes didn't quite agree with the council's peacemaking idea, and why would they? It put them both out of a job, which was supposed to be for life. Surely being a third of a pope is better than not being a pope at all. So with Pope Alexander on the scene, we now made the problem worse, because there was three popes. Fantastic job, Council of Pisa. Just a great job all round. Poor Pope Alexander didn't last very long though, he promptly died only one year after taking his reign. A new Pope, John XXIII, was put in his place. Seriously, there's been 22 of them already, John. Choose something else. But this new third Pope thankfully seemed to have more sense about him. He held a meeting with the second pope, who also agreed this whole situation was bloody bonkers, and each of them probably couldn't keep track of which pope they were anyway. They both agreed to excommunicate the other first pope before both resigning themselves. Shockingly, they all actually kept their word, and the council was finally able to elect a new singular pope, Pope Martin V. Phew, need a cup of tea after all that. Or maybe even some sacramental wine. Now, we'll take a short break, and soon we'll be back with fact number two. Fact number two. Going on holiday is good for you. We've all said it after a long week, month, or year at work. I need a holiday. The occasional curse word might frequent that sentence, but the sentiment remains the same. Sometimes we all just need a goddamn fucking holiday. But sometimes it feels a little counterintuitive that we feel so much better after taking a break. I mean, breaks usually mean more activity, ironically such as walking for miles on end, long flights, or endless swimming. But yet, afterwards, we usually feel rejuvenated, both mentally and physically. But it turns out that when we say we need that holiday, we might actually be tuning into our body's needs more than we think we are. Countless studies have been conducted to try and find out just how beneficial holidays actually are. And now I think we should all just take a moment to think of all the poor souls 
who sacrificed their time and effort to take part in those experiments, and had to endure being sent on long all-expenses-paid holidays. <sighs> Bastards. According to the research, people who, quote, always make time for regular trips, had a feeling of better well-being than those who didn't travel as often, and by quite a large margin. Those who enjoyed frequent bouts of travelling had an average score of 68.4 on the Gallup-Heathway Wellbeing Index, whilst those who stayed at home more often only scored about 51.4. Disturbingly, a study in 2000 showed that not going on holiday is associated with a higher risk of morbidity and mortality. Yikes! Looks like the pandemic screwed us over a bit more than we thought. This is due to many reasons, but here are just a few to make you feel a little bit worse about the fact you've not been getting away for the past year or so. You're welcome. High blood pressure is a common health problem in our modern day, but is it really our fault if there's so many McDonald's just around every corner? And home delivery! They do home delivery now, people! Well, my doctor didn't agree with that logic. But at least there's a way to help alleviate it without having to eat less chocolate and going for a run. And on that note, why do those two things seem to be the answer for everything in life? Anyway, a study found that when comparing two different groups of people, those who proceeded with their normal routine and those who went on holiday, the ones who jetted off decreased their blood pressure by an average of 6%. Those who stayed home didn't see any decrease at all, and if anything, it probably made them more stressed, knowing that they got the raw end of this deal. It's not just blood pressure and stress which can be affected, though. A study into heart health and its relationship with going on holiday was undertaken by the University of Pittsburgh, and the data is actually quite horrifying. They studied approximately 9,000 men between the ages of 35 and 37 and kept an eye on them for nine years. Creepy. All of the men in question were categorized as being at high risk for coronary heart disease. And it was found that the participants who didn't take a break at least once each year were 32% more likely to die from a heart attack. So where does this leave us? Well, for people lucky enough to be able to afford going on regular holidays, they'll be rewarded with a better sense of well-being, lower blood pressure, less risk of dying from a heart attack, and also a bunch of cool photos for social media, and maybe a fridge magnet or two. But it's not always money which is the problem. In the US, there is currently no federal or state statutory minimum paid vacation of paid public holidays for its workers. But research suggests that this may not actually be in employers' interests. Ernst and Jung conducted research into the link between vacations and productivity, and they found that for each additional 10 hours of vacation which employees took, their year-end performance ratings improved by 8%. Additionally, employees who had more holidays were less likely to leave the firm. Which is why I'm currently speaking to you from the beach. Another pina colada please, mate. Yeah.
Fact number three. Where you go on holiday says a lot about you. Do you remember in 1995 when NASA spent a few years and a few million dollars giving drugs to spiders? No? Well, if you don't, that really happened. And in another one of those studies that received funding for reasons I can't explain, it was discovered that there's a powerful link between where you like to travel and what kind of person you are. Hmm. I wonder what it had to say about my penchant for visiting Soviet gulags. Anyway, it turns out, if you're just one avocado short of being a hipster, and the city break is your thing, then according to this study, you must be creative, extroverted, and intellectual. Although I don't know what's intellectual about sharing your relaxation spot with five million short-tempered office workers cramming to get on public transport. If, on the other hand, you prefer the quiet seclusion of the mountains for your annual getaway, surprise, surprise, you're an introvert, which is pretty damn obvious. You're also, apparently, a very contemplative person who likes to reflect upon life in the cool meditative surroundings of the mountains. The man behind this study is University of Virginia psychologist Shigehiro Oishi, and he conducted it as part of his original hypothesis known as person-environment fit, or to put it plainly, People choose their surroundings to fulfill their personal values and desires, not the other way around. He also found that although extroverts holiday in cities, the most extroverted of all in society opt for beach vacations instead. Since beaches are typically packed, with other people and offer ample opportunities to socialize with new people who you don't know, while simultaneously showing off one's body and soaking up the sun. Oh yeah, I just remembered all the reasons why I bloody hate the beach. Interestingly, Oishi found that this phenomenon goes way beyond vacations. When he plotted the answers from his nationwide personality survey, including hundreds of thousands of respondents, a clear trend began to emerge. There's a strong correlation between the elevation at which a person lives and how introverted they are. So those who live in mountainous regions are the most introverted, and those who live by the coast are the least. So yeah, people get progressively more extroverted the closer to sea level they are. But again, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? Anyone who chooses to become a professional hermit at the top of a snowy mountain probably hates the holy shit out of just about everyone. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Random Interesting Facts. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please rate and review it and subscribe so you never miss another episode. Also, if you have a random interesting fact that you're just dying to share with me, then tweet it at me using the hashtag 
Riff Podcast. That's R-I-F Podcast. Each week I'll choose my favourite fan-submitted fact and read it out at the end of the episode. Thank you.